0: this evening i'd like to talk about authority i think one of the most touching and powerful images that comes to us uh, in buddhist teaching comes to us through the story of siddhartha on the eve of his awakening and in that story it's told of how Siddhartha, when sitting beneath a Bodhi tree, was really assailed by Mara or the forces of delusion who tried to tempt him away from his path or his resolve to awaken. And Mara appeared in, in many different forms in the form of anger, in the form of greed, in the form of, of lust, in the form of pleasure and it's said in the story that in the face of these different forms of Mara that Siddhartha sat on moving and responded to Mara simply by saying I know you and in the latter part of, of Mara's dance with the Buddha it said that mara finally taunted siddhartha with the force of doubt asking siddhartha what gave him the right to think that he could awaken what gave him the right to think he could be a seeker what gave him asking him what gave him the right what gave him the authority to sit beneath the Bodhi tree and to resolve to awaken. And in response, Siddhartha simply leaned forward, reached forward with his arm and touched the earth with his fingertips, signaling to Mara that the living earth simply being bore witness his right to awaken Buddhist teaching very much begins with this image of a way of claiming authority throughout that the life of the Buddha that message of claiming authority continues claiming authority simply through being alive, through being. The very last words of the Buddha before he died was to say to his disciples, be a lamp unto yourself, be a refuge unto yourself. Take no external refuge, but hold fast to the truth as a lamp and as a refuge in the midst of the teaching life of the buddha there was a time when he was teaching a a group of people called the Kalamas, who came to him very confused um, asking the buddha how they knew they could trust in someone they said you know there are so many teachers who come to town and so many of them spend their time disparaging each other and putting each other down and claiming to be the ones to believe in and the ones who should be trusted and the ones who have the right truth. And they asked the Buddha, how do we know how we can trust or who we should trust? And the Buddha answered by saying, you shouldn't trust in someone or something just because they loudly or because they have years of history which they can claim as evidence to their truth. You shouldn't trust in someone or something just because everybody else agrees or because it's a teaching that particularly pleases, particularly pleases you. Or you shouldn't trust in someone or something even if thousands Of people proclaim the truth that you should trust in that which through your own understanding and your own experience leads to happiness and to well-being and to freedom and that this is where you should place your trust then the question of authority is an ongoing exploration in our lives. It's a question that doesn't have to do just with a particular time in history or particular circumstances. It's a question which doesn't even have to do with our own unique personal histories. The question of authority is an ongoing question simply because I think the issue of authority Touches upon and involves our deepest concerns and our deepest feelings as women, as human beings. It touches upon our own feelings of fear and trust, of insecurity and safety. The issue of authority touches upon our concerns about confusion and uncertainty in our lives, the questions we have about power and about feeling powerless. I think from our earliest years and throughout the whole of our lives, we are again and again in touch with times and moments when we feel confused and uncertain and unsafe or powerless. And there are many times that we want to, to flee from or to avoid those feelings or to try and ignore them if we can. And yet I think it is also true that we are never really separate, never entirely separate from those feelings, unless we really know and are in touch with a genuine sense of inner authority. We live clearly in a very uncertain world, both inwardly and outwardly. We can never even really know what the next moment is going to bring to us. We can never really predict the joys or the sorrows that lie in wait for us. We can't predict the moment of our death or even the way in which our life will unfold. Even in those moments in our lives that feel the most reliable, you know, when we feel calm and everything finally feels in order and our relationships are stable and there's no particular crisis that we're being asked to respond to. Even in those moments, somehow life continues to surprise us. You know, out of nowhere, that sense of order can so completely fall apart. There can be illness, there can be death, there can be separation, there can be loss that appears out of seemingly nowhere. At times, because of the uncertainty of this territory of our lives, we really at times do our very best to armor and protect ourselves against feeling unsafe. Sometimes we try to armor or protect ourselves through through strategies, through positions, through possessions, through control. And yet, even as we do all of these things and engage in all of these mechanisms, fundamentally we know that our efforts to control the uncontrollable are actually in vain, that there is a certain futility within them, like building sandcastles before an oncoming tide. Life many times disturbs us, the world around us and our inner life, and we are disturbed. An anxiety, I feel, is the mood of feeling out of control. Anxiety is the mood that comes with our awareness of not being in control. An awareness which is there on some level, I think, with us most times in our lives. Anxiety is a part of our lives when also when we don't really feel connected with a very deep unshakable confidence in ourselves or in life itself. I think there's a kind of existential anxiety that we live with. It's not especially, you know, about a fear of the dark or, you know, it's not a specific anxiety about being afraid of spiders or afraid of getting ill or afraid of being lonely. It is more the anxiety of an underlying feeling that at times can be there of being somewhat lost or homeless or not at ease not at ease in ourselves and not at ease in our own authority. It's an anxiety also that comes with a sense of separateness and so feeling vulnerable and not knowing, perhaps on a deep or on a wise level, ourselves, who we are, the truth of who we are. It is no surprise then I think, because of anxiety, that the whole question of authority is so crucial in our lives. Now, for some people, they regard authority as something to be feared or to be avoided. Figures of authority, people of authority, positions of authority, are seen as something to be avoided. I think particularly for those who have a history with negative authority. You know, particularly for people who've had authority figures in their past who've been very oppressive or domineering or, or manipulative, you know, the whole relationship to authority in the present is affected by those past relationships. Um, so that there can be a sort of a suspicion that arises when there's even the vaguest hint of authority. You know, they find themselves rebelling and reacting out of fear out of fear of the the power or the authority that may be exerted over them. You know, this happens, or or sometimes this really clearly is revealed on retreats. You know, for some, coming on retreats is like this battle with a perceived authority. You know, the schedule is looked at, and immediately for some people, they're feeling like, I'm not going to do that. You know, no one can make me do that, you know. And so people are sitting and they're walking, you know. People are walking and they come and sit, you know. It's like this rebellion. It's like being a rebel without a cause. I mean, it, sometimes it, it, it's frustrating because nobody even notices or applauds, you know, <laughs> how wonderfully unique and, 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 you know, independent and autonomous they may be. You know, there's kind of dancing alone in this rebellion. Um, some people don't find it even on deeper levels, you know, for some people to, to sit to a guided meditation is an excruciating experience that can actually even lead to nausea. You know, that feeling of being, somebody's telling me what to do. You know, somebody telling me to pay attention to my arm. You know, I don't want to pay attention to my arm. I have to. All the struggles that go in, go on in in relationship to authority. Sometimes what's not seen is that we can be so busy reacting to perceived external authorities that we are actually giving authority to our reactions. They become our authority. We can be so engaged in our rebellion and our reactions that we don't always notice how imprisoned we actually are far more by our reactions than by any perceived sense of authority and that by being imprisoned in our reactions to authority we are equally exiled from any genuine true sense of confidence and ease In our own being for another person you know who maybe who has never really felt very safe or felt very protected in their life sometimes there comes a kind of infatuation and fascination with authority authority that's perceived in other people or in belief systems or in structures they're kind of seen as being a refuge you know a safe haven that maybe offers the safety and protection that person feels unable to offer themselves. Sometimes, those outer authorities are seen to have the power to guide us in a way that we don't make any mistakes in our lives. But this is equally a dangerous position because there is such. A surrender of inner authority, this construction of an outer authority that in truth has no capacity to protect us in any real way or to guide us in any authentic way. There's a story I wanted to read you that so much illustrates the kind of illusoriness of this sort of sense of outer authority. There was a guru who sat down to worship each evening, and every evening the ashram cat would get in the way and distract the worshiper. So he ordered that the cat be tied up during evening worship. After the guru died, the cat continued to be tied during evening worship. And when the cat expired, another cat was brought to the ashram, so that it could be duly tied up during evening worship. (laughs) And centuries later, learned books were written by the guru's scholarly disciples on the religious significance of tying up a cat while worship is performed. (laughs) For other people, I think sometimes they become Um, more conscious of their own concerns around authority in moments of crisis or disturbance or disaster. You know, sometimes in those moments of crisis when we can indeed feel very lost in our lives and very isolated and alone, there can arise an acute longing, you know, to have someone or something who can tell us what to do. You know, who can tell us what to do next who can offer us some kind of answer or some kind of prescription or some sort of technique or a way of ending the disturbance. You know, and it's obviously when we're really looking for an answer, you can find a lot of answers. And sometimes those answers bring clarity and sometimes they bring more confusion. Recently I met someone who kept a disaster page in their final facts. You know, things to do in case of disaster, you know, numbers of therapists, of chiropractors, of, you know, spiritual healers, of past life healers, of, you know, enlightenment teachers, you know, There's a whole page of things to do in times of disaster. And they said it was so difficult, because, you know, when they were really in a place of death, they hardly knew what to choose, you know. <laughs> <laughs> what should I do, you know? What should, what's the right thing to choose? But there were so many answers, it became impossible to think of the right one. Because in our lives there is an essential level of unpredictability, of uncertainty, Because our lives are in many ways beyond our control, there will never actually be a shortage of authorities with countless answers and solutions. And because of anxiety, because of feeling exiled inwardly from a genuine inner authority, there will also never be a shortage of people who are searching for authorities to believe in and to trust in many ways the anxious and the expert are endlessly married you know they're locked together in an eternal dance i think there is a temptation to often in our lives to see authority as being an external presence you know there may be many times in our lives when we are really fortunate to encounter external authorities who are truly benevolent and empowering, and free us. But there are also many, many times when we see external authorities as having the power to judge us, to punish us, or to blame us in some way. Many times we see external authorities as as having the power to determine what is wrong and imperfect and inadequate within ourselves. Sometimes we don't even aware of the power that this has within us, this inclination we have to see authority as punitive. You know, we're in, we're in a time, you know, of, of, of buying this, this convent nearby, and I found it so amusing that sometimes I would go and I would meet the nuns, you know, at the door, and they'd come, you know, with these, you know, real uniforms. and. Suddenly I'd find myself wanting to curtsy or something, (laughs) you know, like, just because there was this uniform, you know, I think, well, you know, I ought to be doing something here, you know, nothing to do with who was in the uniform, it was just the uniform itself. You know, how many times are you driving in your car and you see a police car behind you? And immediately, you know, you check in to see what you've done wrong, you know. Totally law-abiding citizen, and you try start treating yourself like a criminal, you know, just because there's this uniform. It's almost cellular within us, you know, that we see authority in some way or something that represents authority to us. And there arises this sense of self-consciousness, this uncomfortable sense within ourselves where we begin to start checking about what is wrong or imperfect or inadequate about ourselves. You know, that self-consciousness, it doesn't really say a whole lot about the people or the figures that we are meeting in our lives, but it does say a lot about our own relationship to authority, Anxiety means feeling uneasy. It does mean carrying with us a lurking sense, sometimes a very evident sense, of imperfection. As much as we might find ourselves, you know, rejecting or questioning external authorities and people or systems, There's a part of us, too, that at times really sees these people and systems as holding the power to relieve us of the burden of imperfection, to bestow approval and acceptance, to bestow and give to us love and affirmation. So as much as we at times reject authorities, at times also, we find ourselves in a position of not truly being able to let go. Because when there's anxiety there, we crave approval and acceptance and affirmation, sometimes above all else. It is also true that when there's anxiety, there can be a part of us that deeply longs for something that can guide us, tell us how to live, how to be, how what to aim for. Because if there was someone who could really tell us this and offer the approval to go with us, in a way it would relieve us of the responsibility of moment-to-moment wakefulness in our lives. It would relieve us of the responsibility of living our lives in an authentic way, aware of what really guides and moves us and our responses. You know, and in moments of anxiety and fear, living in an authentic way, living in a way which is truthful to ourselves, can feel like such a puzzle. And it can feel like a burden. You know, Simone de Beauvoir once said in Quite an extreme statement, that we are tempted to accept the submissive role to avoid the strain involved in undertaking an authentic existence. I think when we are wakeful in our lives, when we are at ease within ourselves, then actually that that responsibility of learning to live in an authentic way is actually greeted with joy. I think we very much need to be aware of those moments and times in our lives whenever we bestow authority upon someone or something outside of ourselves because we are allowing them then to determine the truth of our lives. We're consenting to them determining in our own lives what is right and wrong, what is acceptable and unacceptable. And we are indebted whoever we bestow authority on. It's a wonderful Nasruddin story. Nasruddin was eating a poor man's diet of chickpeas and bread. His neighbor, who also claimed to be a wise man, was living in a grand house and dining on sumptuous meals provided by the emperor himself. His neighbor told Nasruddin, If only if you if only you would learn to flatter the emperor and be subservient like I do, you wouldn't have to live on chickpeas and bread. Naserdin replied, and if if you would only learn to live on chickpeas and bread, you wouldn't have to flatter and live subservient to the emperor. we do feel our relationship to authority really needs to be very conscious. It's certainly not a question of rejecting all authorities in our lives, in the past, in the present, and probably in the future. We have all encountered people and wisdom and systems that have guided and supported and encouraged us, that have held our our freedom and well-being close to their hearts and been enriched by those authorities. But even no matter how much we are enriched by them, they can't substitute for us on our path. No matter how much wisdom we're in contact with, it's still no substitute for our own understanding, our own deepening. You know, to look at a glorious menu, doesn't satisfy our hunger. I think historically, as women, authority has been and continues to be both a powerful presence and a powerful influence in our lives. You know, from the beginning of our lives, authority has been a specter, you know, a ghost, a presence. You know, there are so many times perhaps in our own journeys when Partners, parents, um, husbands, social decrees, socially accepted roles and identities have held an enormous power and had an enormous influence in our lives. The influence and the power to seemingly dispense right and wrong, acceptance and rejection, fear and approval. Now, for many of us, of course, in our lives, you know, we're not imprisoned by those structures anymore. I mean, we're incredibly fortunate in our world, many of us, that we're not imprisoned by these structures anymore that can dispense all of this. But this is not true, obviously, for countless women in our world for whose quality of life is continuous and endlessly is determined by external power and authority. In the UN, has lately estimated that there are 60 million missing women in the world. You know, babies who were allowed to die or were, who were killed because of social decrees. And authorities that said it was not acceptable to be a girl child. In times, that I think even in our own lives, even if these outer structures are devo- d- dissolved or dissolving, we can still see ourselves struggling with anxiety and with fear, and at times with figures of power. Find ourselves struggling with the questions of what it means to be free. Sometimes I feel on a cellular level we almost absorb the history of our ancestors, which is inclined to give authority away and then to explore and to question what it means to be free it doesn't mean that there's any need necessarily to dwell on our histories or to dwell upon authority figures that have featured in our past but then there's a great need to be extraordinarily awake and present in the moment And to really notice the very subtle ways in which authority can be sacrificed and surrendered in our own lives and in the moment. To really be awake in those moments when we are really tempted to flee from ourselves, to flee from what is true within ourselves, and to surrender power and authority in a way that doesn't free us. And really important, to no longer miss stake, approval and affirmation and belonging as any kind of refuge, which is true or authentic. The the ways that we struggle or sacrifice authority may not take place in very gross or obvious forms in our lives, you know, where we surrender to people or systems or social decrees. But there are many other ways that authority is actually given away. Sometimes authority is given away in a very powerful fashion to the structure of models. You know, models can hold tremendous power and authority for us. Models of what is right, models of what is correct, models of what is acceptable. These models can be given immense authority, not only to decree what is right, but also to judge ourselves by To condemn and blame ourselves through to judge what is imperfect or unacceptable or unlovable about ourselves i mean think of the models in our world i mean the models of of the perfect body this is very powerful you know the model of the perfect appearance the perfect personality what it takes to be loved, what it takes to be accepted. These models continue every day almost to invade our lives. And they encourage us to flee from ourselves. They encourage us to to strive to reach somewhere else and to be someone else, which is equally a rejection and a struggle and a rejection of who we are. In order, you know, it seems that the price of arriving at perfection and acceptability and rightness, that the price we must pay is the rejection of what is. Of course, the untold secret in the story of all of these models is that no one actually ever arrives. As it's the totally, un, you know, it's the hidden, no one arrives. You ever met anybody a i never met anybody who arrived. On subtler levels, I think in meditation, we can continue the pattern of fleeing from ourselves and giving authority away in different ways. Sometimes what, the place where we give authority to are the countless voices that we carry within ourselves. I mean, in meditation and in our lives, there can be so many inner voices that hold immense power. I mean, think of the voice of the critic, the voice of the judge. This is fairly powerful. I mean, how often do you manage to just say, "Oh, yes, yeah, just a voice, you know? Mm-hmm. you know. How powerful that voice is to determine our well-being in the moment. How much authority is given to the judge whose job, I mean, let's be frank about the role and the job of the judge here. The role of the job of the judge is to be alert, to be imperfect, and to blame. You know, the judge doesn't really have any other role in this life. And what authority does the voice of the judge actually carry? I mean, you know, you may have found yourself in this retreat absolutely cringing before the power of that voice, you know, feeling devastated by it, comparing yourself to others, you know, rejecting yourself because of that voice. What authority does it carry? You know, sometimes it carries the authority of endless voices from our past. Sometimes you don't even know whose voice the judge is speaking with. But more, more the power of the voice of the judge lies because we have given authority to models of rightness and acceptability. That is actually what gives power to the voice of the judge, because we have given authority to images or to models of rightness and acceptability and invested them with power. You know, the voice of the achiever, the voice of the striver can carry a great weight it carries the authority that we have given to should. It carries the authority that we have given to images of how we should be of perfection. Investing them with authority, we reject what is. The voice of despair, you know, the voice of powerlessness, the voice of the victim. It can also be given incredible authority to dictate, to guide us, to dispense our own decrees about who we are. And the voice of the powerless speaks of the authority we have given away and a surrender, a sacrifice of inner authority. You know, for some people, the voice that has authority in their practice, in their lives, is the voice of the campaign manager, the negotiator, who is endlessly plotting the course of their lives, the course of their meditation, to keep them safe from making mistakes, to stop them from making mistakes, relying endlessly upon formulas and prescriptions that have been invested with authority. Sometimes we find ourselves giving authority to conclusions or beliefs about ourselves. You know, we say, this is what I am. I've always been this way. I'm powerless. I'm fearful or I'm angry. And sometimes we solidify that authority and those conclusions by calling forth the authority of the past. You know? We say, I've always been like this. You know? I've always been angry. I've always been fearful. My mother was fearful. My grandmother was fearful. You know, runs in the family. It's a family tradition, you know? It's always going to be fearful. The whole family is fearful, you know. The only way we can ever live, you know, is be fearful. You know, it becomes such a conclusion. This is the way I am, and the authority of the past is guiding our lives. Now, there are so many ways, but this process of giving authority happens in the moment. We are often not aware of the ways in which we do it. But it happens on a moment-to-moment level in our meditation. We can see absolutely the way we flee from ourselves and invest authority elsewhere. Now, sometimes, you know, it happens in our meditation. I mean, I wonder, if, does anybody um, have an idea of what a good meditation looks like? Anyone have no idea of what a good meditation looks like? I mean, most of us have ideas. I mean, you know what a bad one looks like. <laughs> that means you have an idea what a good one looks like. You can't have an idea of what a bad one looks like unless you've also got an idea of what a good one looks like. I mean, do you have a thought in here that you've had a bad sitting? You know, or that you've had a bad walking. You know, how do you know? How can we know except by having an idea of what a good one looks like? Now how much is that actually, do we give authority to that? And what does that authority do? You know, when we have that conclusion that we've had a bad city, what has actually been happening? When we've had the conclusion, we've had a good city, what has actually been happening? Sometimes we have an experience that fits in with our image, and sometimes we have an experience that doesn't fit in with our image. And how much, what do we think about ourselves? When we have a bad sitting, how do we feel about ourselves when we have a good meditation? Just think of that. You know, you have a bad sitting, do you come out saying, ah, oh, absolutely, I'm a wonderful meditator, you know, I'm doing great, you know, I'm fine, you know. Do you ever come out of a really an experience you call a good sitting and say, oh, I'm such a wretch, you know, I'm such a failure? No. Our sense of who we are is so related to the judgments we have made upon our experience and the contents of our experience. Giving authority to the contents of our experience, we also give authority not only to our images of practice and the way things should be, but we give authority to our conclusions about who we are. Sometimes Our meditation delights us because it conforms to our image of what is good and what is right. Sometimes those meditations that delight us are the ones to be so careful of because those are sometimes the ways and the times that actually we are strengthening our reliance upon proof and evidence to give us a sense of being. You know? When we, when we look at our meditations and say, oh, that was a good meditation, you know, I'm so pleased with it, you know, it looked just like it was supposed to look. That is really strengthening the ways we are relying upon proof and evidence to prove ourselves. Sometimes the meditations that we really struggle with, you know, in those moments of really struggling, those moments when we are So tempted to say, you know, this is a bad meditation; it's falling apart. I'm nowhere. If we can really refrain from conclusions, sometimes those meditations that we really struggle with, if we can restrain ourselves from conclusions, are the meditations we're actually learning about genuine authority. When we're not accepting as evidence, you know, this conclusion this particular experience as being any kind of proof of who we are. We invest authority in the contents of our experience through holding. Whether it's the voice of the judge, whether we hold on to a thought, whether we hold on to a feeling of anger, whether we hold on to a memory that is pleasant or unpleasant, Through that investment and holding, we are allowing our sense of being to be determined by what we have taken hold of. We are giving that authority over us. It is exactly the same process as investing authority in an an external person or system or symbol. And then letting that guide us and determine our lives. You know, think of it. You know, think of the person, you know, the person perhaps who who is so obsessed by the image of the perfect body. And in allowing that to determine their lives becomes anorexic. You know, they have invested that image with authority. That authority then determines their life. Think of what happens when we invest a feeling, a mental state, a thought through grasping with authority. We are giving that authority to guide our life, to draw a conclusion about ourselves, to say, This is what I am, this is who I am. It is a flight from ourselves. True authority doesn't lie in any person or model or technique. And true authority never lies in the contents of our experience. True authority actually lies in our capacity to see, in our capacity to be attentive, to be present and awake, because this is where we find understanding. And that is the only true place to take refuge in our life not in any content, not in any experience, not in any person, but to take refuge in our capacity to seek, to rest in our own attentiveness, to find the authority of being, the authority of being awake, of resting in a wakeful presence in the midst of the dance of all of our content. You know, whenever you feel that you are lost, whenever you feel that you're in the hold of something, whenever you feel that doubt has overtaken you, when you don't know who you are, I think one of the most powerful things to do is to remind yourself simply to reach forward and to touch the earth with your fingertips. That is all the authority that you need to remind yourself to rest in your capacity to see and to be awake. Because there is where we find understanding, there is actually where we find enduring authority. An authority that is dedicated to our well-being and freedom. If we take a couple of minutes quietly together.